This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hi, I'm Jennifer Palmieri. And I'm Claire McCaskill. We're the hosts of the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024. We both know firsthand that winning an election is hard. And having been in and around tough races for most of our adult lives, we have some unique insights into what it will take to win this 2024 election. And some crazy stories to share, too. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you're listening and follow. New episodes every Thursday. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Kimberly Atkins-Store, Barb McQuaid, and me, Joyce Vance. Jill will be back next week, which is a good thing. There's so much going on right now, we're really going to miss her today. This week, we'll talk about the latest in the Trump prosecutions, DOJ's proposed settlement in a class action on behalf of immigrant families separated during the Trump administration, and we'll discuss the only kind of shopping Kim doesn't like. Here's a hint. It involves how and where lawyers file their cases. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. Um, So I need to say, I know it's been a tough couple of weeks for people, and it's been sort of hard to be upbeat, but I got a reminder this week from one of the kids in our neighborhood that there's a joyous occasion almost among us. It is almost Halloween. So in that spirit of looking for the joy in life, I have started looking at Halloween candy, and I've been thinking about maybe baking some special things for the kids that are on our street. We're one of those neighborhoods that gets a lot of Halloween traffic. Um, Are y'all thinking about candy yet? Kim, do you have any favorites? Yes, I am thinking about candy. So first of all, I'm so, uh, I love that I live in a neighborhood where that takes Halloween seriously. And like on October 1st, man, the decorations went up. Like people are ready. (laughs) It is great. And I've always loved Halloween. I usually have a nice assortment with plenty of my favorite Halloween candy, which happens to be Reese's Cups. I think that is, Mm. you know, that is your top tier. That is the top. But this year, I think we're going to take a different uh, approach to honor the sweet canine girl that came into our life and give out all Snickers. Mm. Oh, I love that. That That's so cute. (laughs) I'm coming to your house. (laughs) And the reason... I I have to say, I stole the idea from a a friend of ours who uh, just had their first baby and her name, the baby's name is Ruth. And so (laughs) they've been giving out baby Ruth. And I was like, oh my goodness, we could do that too. Oh, hilarious. (laughs) That is such a good idea. Isn't it? So that's what we're doing. If I get Mm. out, if I give out 100,000 grand bars, does that mean I will get 100,000 grand? 100 grand? You should try it. 
I'm like racking my brain the names of all of our animals, and we don't have a candy bar among them, I don't think. We have tofu, our new kitten. Maybe I could give out little tofu. Oh, the kids would hate you. The kids would be so mad at you. You're going to get egged. Your house could get egged. I remember the people who gave out apples in my neighborhood growing growing up, You know, which in hindsight, what a beautiful thing, but we hated it. And then there was the year that there was this urban myth about people putting razor blades in Mm -hmm. apples, and they couldn't give out apples. Ruined it for everybody. We were all so happy. No apples. No apples at the Moore's house this year. Well, in any event, that's something to look forward to. And uh, maybe next week we'll have the opportunity to talk about our costumes. Do y'all have big plans in that regard? I'm going as a cranky old woman. No costume required. (laughs) (laughs) All right. You're going to have to work on that one. Hey, Barb, what about you? I know that you've been being really healthy for the last couple of years. Every time I talk to you, you're going running or bike riding. Are you going to pass out candy? Yeah, although, you know, my husband and I have a rule in the house. You can't buy the Halloween candy until the weekend before because mm. we will eat it. Uh, and, and like Kim, we, we buy stuff we like, which is always dangerous because uh, I try to give it all away so we don't have too much. But my husband will say, hey, that's enough. Don't give them a big handful. We want to have some of that. Let's <laughs> for us. Um, but we, we, are, we are into the chocolate candy bars. So uh, Snickers will be big at our house. Milky Way, that's another good one. Um, you know, the fun size and, you know, fun size, not so fun anymore. It used to be a lot bigger. The fun size has gotten smaller, I think. <laughs> I might go all out this year and get full size candy Are bars. You? Those oh, little ones just don't off. do it for me anymore. I'm going to make a big investment in Halloween candy. I'm going to help the economy. <laughs> Excellent. Well, the one thing I really do love, Kim, you're talking about um, Halloween decorations. We have some neighbors in our neighborhood and I go past their house. I go out of my way to go past it because they do these great uh, displays with these skeletons in their yard. I, I, I usually post them on Twitter and threads. They're great. They're um, so good. I love under them. Under the hashtag, hashtag skeleton crew. And you know, uh, Joyce, I, just to bring it back full circle, they started doing that during COVID and it was such a heavy time and it's another heavy time right now. And I think there is just uh, a, a welcome space in my heart for a little bit of levity during heavy times. And so I'm really appreciating the skeletons because they're funny. You know, today there's one's doing the hair of the other. I, I just think it's funny and it gives me a little chuckle during, you know, heavy times. Totally agree. You know, I loved Pete Davidson's cold open on Saturday mm-hmm. Night Live where he said, look, you know, I, my dad was killed during a terrorist attack. And what I've learned is you have to look for the humor. Um, and keep yourself balanced, which I think some people, I certainly feel a little bit guilty when I find myself being happy right now. But I suspect, you know, that that's a, a healthy thing for us to do and, a, and an important thing for us to do, too. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? 
Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Well, there is a lot going on in Trump world this week. In fact, if you get away from your computer for about an hour when you go back, there's more to see. Um, Perhaps most importantly, Trump's former lawyer and Georgia co-defendant Sidney Powell entered a surprise guilty plea Thursday morning. In exchange for her plea, prosecutors reduced the charges to six misdemeanors. She'll serve no time in custody and spend six years on probation. Then on Friday morning, Kenneth Chesbrough, who was supposed to stand trial with Powell next week, also entered a plea. His plea is to a felony, but he too will receive a sentence of probation. So, uh, Barb, let's just cut straight to the chase. Is this a good bargain for Fulton County, or did they give their cases away too cheap? Yeah, it's it's interesting. Number one, it's really, really significant for a few different reasons. I mean, one, it's always uh, good to exchange a conviction and the certainty of a conviction uh, when you can get it. So just not having to do this trial next week is good. Not giving an advance preview of the evidence to the other 16 defendants, 17 defendants, is good. You know, when you've got these two different trials because these two had requested a speedy trial. So they were going to go first. But the real value, of course, here is their cooperation. Um, um, the sentences strike me as really lenient, uh, that neither one of them is going to do any prison time. Um, Joyce, I know you and I both came out of the federal system where we don't give away quite as much um, of, uh, of a sentence as that. But it, what's so important is early cooperation can be so valuable. You know how EMILY's list, uh, EMILY stands for early money is like yeast, about giving money to uh, candidates early can really help bolster their campaign. The same is true when it comes to guilty pleas. Getting early guilty pleas is helpful because the analogy is often to dominoes because once one domino falls, then the defendants realize, oh no, that defendant can testify against me. And then that defendant pleads guilty and falls and has more information. And another defendant looks at that and says, oh no, that defendant's going to testify against me. And so they continue to fall and fall and fall. And so, um, it, uh, although Sidney Powell is an important guilty plea, because, and I think she's been such a visible face of all of, you know, the release, the Kraken and all that sort of stuff. I think Chesbro is actually the more significant person here because he was the architect of the fake electors scheme. Um, and so his guilty plea and cooperation means we're going to now have him testifying against John Eastman, probably Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani. Uh, and I think his testimony is going to be really pivotal to um, convicting all of the other defendants in this case. Do you think these guilty pleas will have any legs for Jack Smith's federal case? You know, I don't know, but doesn't it seem, Joyce, to you and and Kim, that um, you can't really uh, maintain your innocence in one forum if you're pleading guilty and testifying in the other forum? Anything they say in the state court can be used against them in federal court. And so it really does suggest to me that um, they are either in negotiations with Jack Smith or are certainly contemplating them because um, all of this evidence will be used against them there. You know, they haven't been charged, of course, in federal court yet. Uh, They were each described as unindicted co-conspirators. And it seems likely that once uh, Jack Smith is done 
trying Donald Trump, he will move his sights to these unindicted co-conspirators and Chesbro and Powell are two of them. And so maybe um, there are negotiations going on that have already occurred that we don't know about, but it sure seems likely to me that they would want to resolve both cases because, you know, it, it's it's kind of um, uh, self-destructive to plead guilty and testify in one and not in the other. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I'm curious to know whether there were FBI agents in with the GBI guys, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation guys, when Sidney Powell made her proffer. Um, it just it, strictly in terms of protecting his case, Jack Smith needs to know what these folks are saying. Um, I think that there may be quiet communication going on here. Um, so, Kim, here's something that interested me. The first two pleas in this case, there's Scott Hall, the Georgia bail bondsman who had previously pled part of the Coffee County voting machine intrusion scam. I suspect that he's part of the reason that Sidney Powell felt like it was in her best interests to plead because he had testimony to offer about her role and, and against her. They both get pleas to misdemeanors. Chesbro comes along today, still not going to have to do any time in custody, but he has to buy the felony to get his plea. Um, what's next? You know, these three have pled guilty. Do you expect more? And what do you think it might look like? Yeah, I absolutely uh, expect more. I was a little surprised at how quickly um both Powell and uh, Chesbro, you know, Cheese and Kraken, as I called him on threads, um, <laughs> flipped. But, I mean, it, it's an important point, which Joyce pointed out, is that their trials were about to begin. So they sort of, you know, they lived by the Speedy Trial Act and they're they're dying by the Speedy Trial Act because this is the time for them to make that deal. But this, we talk a lot about how... Um, Plea agreements sort of be, often begin around the periphery and then get closer and closer to the center of those involved. But uh, both Chesborough and Powell were right in the center of this plot, and so the it, and I, I don't think that Fonnie Willis would have agreed to these pleas if they were not giving uh, really substantial good. So I think if. Th this approach is working with them. It is going to work with others. Uh, I think we will see more very soon. It, one thing that I thought was interesting is um, our friend Katie Fang reached out to Trump's uh, lawyer in the Georgia case, Steve Sadow. And the response is just so outstanding that I have to read it. Okay, so uh, he, he starts by saying, it appears to me that the guilty plea to, to count 15 of the Fulton County indictment was the result of pressure by Fonnie Willis and her team and the prosecution's looming threat of prison times. Okay, pause. That's what a plea agreement is. Like, that's... <laughs> yes. Well, that's, yeah. That's what it is. You're, you are correct, sir. Okay, next sentence. <laughs> um, however, it is very important for everyone to note that the RICO charge and every other count was dismissed. Again. As part of the deal. <laughs> My gosh. <laughs> Oh and you know, Sadow, who has been doing these cases for like, I don't know, 30 years, as long as I've been doing them, he knows full well that he's <laughs> mischaracterizing the process. So, Steve, shame on you. And the final sentence, once again, I fully expect that truthful testimony would be favorable to my defense strategy. Brother. Okay. Um, I, I just thought that that was interesting. Yes, I think we're going to see more of this. Yeah, I think that that's safe to say. Um, 
Hey, Kim, let's switch gears to Mar-a-Lago, our favorite Mm. case, because there are some interesting developments down there. Um, They focus on Walt Nauta and concerns that his lawyer has a conflict of interest. Where are we on that? Yes. So today, Nada appeared at what is called a Garcia hearing. And what that means is when there is a defendant that shares an attorney with either a co-defendant or witnesses that could uh, account for a conflict of interest, then there is a hearing where the parties are brought in to sort of discuss whether or not, and a judge assesses whether or not uh, the defendant can continue to be represented by that counsel or uh, would it would be in the interest of justice to find another. Now, a defendant can waive that, which Nada has done um, with his representation by Woodard uh, in this case. So they're going to proceed with this uh, having the same attorney. I think that that is wild. Um, I wouldn't want to be representing, I mean, if I were an attorney, I wouldn't be representing witnesses and and defendants in the same case um, for the obvious reasons. I'm a little surprised that Judge Cannon Joyce allowed this to go forward. What, What do you think about that? You know, I think it was a mistake to not give now to new counsel. That That's something that the judge has the authority to do. They don't have to accept the waiver when it's clear that a defendant is not acting in their own best interests and may not receive their constitutional rights to have counsel. Um, I think that this was a really questionable ruling on her part. Well, I think one Thing that I'm concerned about is whether or not, because last week she she got really angry at prosecutors uh, when they brought up the Garcia issue and basically admonished them, said that they were wasting her time, and that's when the um, order was made for them to come back and have this second hearing, uh, this Garcia hearing a week later. So I, I don't know, maybe it's some sour grapes there. I don't know. You know, whatever it is, I mean, her obligation as a judge is to set aside any loyalties that she might have. I think that there's been some suggestion in ProPublica's reporting in the last week or two that she, too, is one of those people who was helped by the Federalist Society and, you know, may have been involved with folks like Leonard Leo along the way. Once you get on the bench, you've got to set aside the people who helped you get there. Her rulings just don't look fair to me on their face, and I have concerns that she may be setting up Nauta's ability to argue that his counsel was ineffective, um, which is something that defendants can use to argue on collateral appeal merits reversal of the conviction against them. It's a very high bar, but it's possible to do that. Therese, let me just ask you this. You know, um, waivers of your constitutional rights have to be knowing, uh, intelligent, and voluntary. And so ordinarily at these kind of conflict of interest hearings, the judge will go through a Q&A with uh, the, the client, the defendant, to make sure it is knowing, intelligent, and voluntary. Do you think that even if th- there's a good record of that, there could still be a problem later, if not on appeal, then on a collateral attack? You know, I think the judge has discretion, even if the defendant says that they want to waive, to go ahead and appoint a, a different independent counsel for them. Um, And the issue here is really that the judge has an obligation to ensure the integrity of the proceedings. There are a lot of reasons. 
individuals' rights, public confidence in, in courts. I mean, there are reasons that federal judges are very protective of the integrity of proceedings in front of them. We've seen a lot of judges bend over backwards to do that. It has nothing to do with who the judge likes, who the judge knows, who the judge wants to win. It's about the process. And I guess the concern that you can have here looking in from the outside is that this judge seems less concerned about the integrity of, of the process itself. Well, Kim, I think we've we've sort of discussed the question I wanted to ask for your assessment on, but I'm still interested in, in what you have to say. I mean, how do we feel about Judge Cannon? I think it's very easy for people who don't like a judge's rulings to be critical of that judge, right? You don't like the ruling, of course you're going to criticize. My feelings about this judge sort of go beyond that. I, I don't like her rulings. Typically, that doesn't make me think a judge isn't competent or that you know they're unfair. It just means I don't like that individual ruling. With Judge Cannon, though, her trajectory over time has given me some some concerns. What's your assessment about how she's handled the Garcia um, issue? Yeah, I definitely have some concerns, and they began uh, with those first comments that uh, I talked about. You know, we weren't in the courtroom today, so I don't know exactly if she did go through all the steps that Barb talked about or exactly how that came down. But it seems to be part and parcel um, with what seems to with what I fear might be a placing of the thumb on the scale. Uh, of the results on this case, which I hope isn't true. Again, we haven't. I haven't seen every bit of evidence that was presented, so I'm going to put a lot of caveats on there. But um, I, I, I am going to continue to watch this closely because that would be a, a terrible thing to happen in such an important case. Yeah, I mean, I think that your approach is exactly the right one. We should be careful. We should know all of the facts before we criticize. Seems to me like you've just made a brilliant argument for having cameras in the courtroom so we can yep. observe the proceedings at, at every step. Um, so, so, Barb, as if enough other things didn't go on this week, <laughs> prosecutors responded to Trump's claim that he's immune from prosecution. Those came in on Thursday. Um, obviously, they disagree with the former president on this point, but can you help us understand their argument? Yes. So, um, you know, the argument that the uh, Trump lawyers had made was essentially, uh, you know, when you're the president, you have to do a lot of stuff that some of it is going to be unpopular. And so uh, as a result, you are immune from civil suit and criminal charges uh, for things you do within the scope of your duties. And the response of the government, I thought was interesting. The first part of it I expected, which is, um, you know, there is this legal standard um, in a case called Harlow versus Fitzgerald that says, um, ordinarily, there is immunity in a civil case for the outer perimeter of the office holder's duties. Um, and the argument I, I would make, and they, they did make, that seems quite logical to me is, that nothing about this case alleges a violation of the law within the scope of the president's duties. This is about interfering in a state election process. Um, and the elections of the president in this country are left to the states to administer. And so by interfering in those, he is not acting in any way within the scope of his presidential duties. He was acting as a candidate. Uh, he was engaged in campaign activity. And for that reason, it's outside uh, even that outer perimeter that's discussed in that case. What's also interesting is they make an additional argument that, um, and in fact, when it comes to a criminal case, uh, the, the Fitzgerald case is all about um, civil uh, 
lawsuits. When it comes to criminal, there's no immunity at all for a president. And so on either of those arguments, they should win. Um, one interesting thing, so I, I'm pretty confident this is a quick win and uh, that um, the judge will rule in favor of the prosecutors. I am interested, Joyce, this seems like one of those issues I think you've said before is immediately appealable, right? So it could, could slow things down. I think that that's right. I think that these kind of immunity claims you can take an interlocutory appeal on. And so depending on how that plays out, there may be some time involved. One hopes that the courts of appeals are savvy to Trump's strategy, which, of course, as we've discussed on this podcast before, consists solely of delay, delay, delay. Um, and hopefully the appellate courts are on to that and they'll handle it appropriately. Um So, one last thing. Did y'all see this this morning? We haven't talked about this yet. But in the New York State, the civil fraud case, um, where Trump had previously commented on a member of the judge's staff, had had made a social media post accusing her of being Chuck Schumer's girlfriend, which was completely made up and totally salacious, Um, the judge realized that Trump had not taken that posting off of his website, which the judge had ordered him to do. He went nuclear in court asking, you know, why shouldn't I hold you in contempt? Why shouldn't I take you into custody? And then he took it under advisement. We don't know um, where that one's headed. But Trump is also under a second gag order. It was imposed earlier this week, I think on Monday, where Judge Chuck can enter a very limited restraining order that um, protects his ability to campaign, his First Amendment rights to engage in political speech, but says, hey, you know, you can't threaten witnesses or try to incite violence. So here's my question for y'all. How long do you think Trump can go without violating it? It's been four (laughs) days. I'm surprised he has made it up until this point. I, I think the problem isn't how long Trump can go. I think the problem is, and I want to ask you guys your thoughts about this, the seemingly, um, resistance by the judges to really put the kind of orders down that I think could end with him being held in contempt of court. I mean, listen, the way that he in New York keeps holding these lie-filled press conferences inside the courthouse to me is just like, how can you let that go on? He's releasing information about uh, Letitia James's home address. I mean, how can he not be held in contempt? You actually don't need, this is something for our listeners, you don't need for any sort of gag order to be in place to be held in contempt of court. A judge can hold you in contempt of court if you are disruptive to the court proceedings and the administration thereof, especially if you're doing that repeatedly. So this is something that's within their power. I get it. He has a First Amendment right as a former official and as a political candidate. But at some point, you have to draw a line in there. And when he is putting people in danger and really just trying to um, just cast dispersions and invalidate the entire court process and people's trust in it, I think that he should have been held in contempt a long time ago. It's interesting. Judge Engeron did impose a $5,000 fine on Donald Trump today. Um, And I think that could be a shot across the bow for all the judges. Like I'm sure Judge Chetkin is watching that and saying, all right, um, because it might be a good deterrent for Trump uh, with both of the gag orders. Um, But, um, you know, like Kim, it is amazing how much he can get away with um, I think because he is a candidate for president and because he just pushes and pushes and pushes. But um, I think it's a, good, it's a good message that the judge imposed this fine. And I imagine repeated violations will result in escalating fines. 
Yeah, so this is interesting. This is developing while we're podcasting, and a friend just sent me the order. So let me read Judge Angeron's order because it's telling. $5,000 might not sound like much of a fine. Trump's lawyers had said it was an accident that he took the post off of social media, didn't realize it was on his website, whatever. But here's what the judge had to say. This is from his written order. Donald Trump has received ample warning from this court as to the possible repercussions of violating the gag order. He specifically acknowledged that he understood and would abide by it. Accordingly, issuing yet another warning is no longer appropriate. This court is way beyond the warning stage. <laughs> given defendants' position that the violation was inadvertent and given that it's a first-time violation, this court will impose a nominal fine. $5,000 payable to the New York Lawyers Fund for Client Protection. Make no mistake, future violations, whether intentional or unintentional, will subject the violator to far more severe sanctions, which may include, but are not limited to, steeper financial penalties, holding Donald Trump in contempt of court, and possibly imprisoning him pursuant to New York Judiciary Law Section 753. Wow. Boom. Well, let's hope that this is a sea change uh, to the way, to the approach that judges are taking with his conduct from here on. This week, the Department of Justice and the ACLU announced the settlement of a big class action lawsuit. It was the one filed on behalf of families separated at the southwest border during the Trump administration. I mean, I'm sure you all remember that. I mean, you know, babies ripped from the arms of their parents. It was really a, a, a horrific and, and cruel program. And Joyce, I know you've been following this suit for a while. In fact, you interviewed the lead ACLU lawyer, Lee Gellert, in 2021 about this case. I went back and read the transcript of that. You know, he's coming to visit my class next week. And I'm so excited about the timing of this to hear all about it. Um, can you tell us, you know, the case was called Ms. L versus ICE. Who is the mysterious Ms. L and what was this lawsuit all about? Yeah, so your your students are in for a treat, Barb, because Lee is the patron saint of um, <laughs> people trying to come to this country to seek asylum or to immigrate here so that they and their kids can have better lives. He has worked tirelessly on these cases um, and also on figuring out ways to reunite families, because you'll recall that part of how horrible this situation was was that when Attorney General Sessions first authorized these procedures, there was no concern about getting information that was necessary to reunite families after the separation. So teenagers, you know, even some younger kids could talk about who their parents were. Toddlers, babies, very difficult um, to reunify families, and Lee has worked tirelessly on that effort. That led to this settlement. Ms. L., the original plaintiff, is a woman who was separated from her child and files a lawsuit in the Southern District of California seeking reunification. The American Civil Liberties Union, where Lee works, steps in to represent her, and once they look at her case and realize there are a lot of similarly situated people, they ask the court for permission to proceed as a class action. That means that the case involves now not only Miss L, but other people who are similarly situated who want to opt in and become a part of the lawsuit. 
When they amended the lawsuit, the ACLU alleged violations of the family's due process rights, but also violations of the asylum law. You know, it's a matter of of international law that people are permitted to seek asylum. In the United States, you don't have to enter the country legally to, to seek asylum. No matter how you get here, wherever you are, you can then present yourself and seek asylum. And that law was being violated as well during the time of the family separation policy. So the ACLU brings the lawsuit, which starts with Miss L, a very brave person who decided to speak up for her child and then extends to the entire universe of affected people. And so the case finally gets settled this week. Kim, what are the terms of the settlement? Is this like a money damages thing or how, how will the the uh, affected parties be compensated? Yeah, so the settlement does not involve the payment of any monetary damage. But what it does is that it sets new standards uh, that limit the way that families might be separated in the future. And very importantly, it would end the uh, no-tolerance policy that went into place during the Trump administration that really exacerbated existing policy that allowed in some cases for parents to be detained separately from their children and really created the chaos that we all saw playing out uh, over the past several years. It also uh, includes some uh, other relief for the people involved, including support services for uh, separated families, um, including those that tried to assist them, those who are still not yet reunited to get uh, reunited, some immigration relief if they're trying to go through the immigration process, some assistance in getting through that. Um, things like behavioral health services, think about that. There are some families who for years did not know where their family members were or if they would even see them again. It is so crucial that they have access to behavioral health services, uh, housing services, uh, medical services. All these things are a part of the settlement. Yeah, in, in announcing this, um, the, the press release, um, Attorney General Merrick Garland called the practice of separating families shameful, and the Associate Attorney General Vanita Gupta um, said that the separation of families was a betrayal of our nation's values. So it's um, it's good to see. I think the same United States government that engaged in this process. Uh, making good and trying to compensate these families for the harm that befell them uh, by the United States of America. Yeah. Um, Joyce, you had a good Substack piece about this uh, in your newsletter the other day, Civil Discourse. And one of the things I noticed there was you wrote about this, that the ban on family separation going forward, like this policy, this shameful practice, this betrayal of our national values um, is done and we're not going to do it anymore, but only for eight years. (laughs) What? If it's so awful, why is the ban not permanent? Yeah, so this is such an interesting development in the settlement, which was um, negotiated in large part by Vanita Gupta, who you just mentioned. It's a very aggressive settlement by the government. They are um, trying to do the right thing here and giving up a lot of ground um, in, in the sense of providing the services that Kim talked about, funding those services in ways that seem really appropriate. And I had that same question, Barb. How come eight years? It turns out that this is the answer. 
Only Congress could have permanently ended family separation. And of course, we know that at the heart of the problems with immigration is the fact that Congress just is at gridlock on this. They've absolutely proven themselves incapable of achieving any compromise and coming up with an updated immigration policy. So DOJ did the best thing it could do. It had the authority to suspend the practice for eight years. That means for the final two years of the Biden administration, for the entire term of the next president and on beyond that. The hope is, I think, that by that point in time, we will have moved past this sort of crazy anti-immigration mood that some parts of the political uh, spectrum in this country seem to be engaged in and will be beyond the danger. But in any event, DOJ did the best thing it could do here. Mm-hmm. Um, Kim, what about the status of, of these families? Um Are there still some children out there who are separated from their families? Yes, there are. So um, there was an estimated that more than a thousand children had been separated from their families uh, over the course of uh, this zero policy, uh, the time that the zero zero tolerance policy was in place. So far, according to the Department of Justice, about 750 children have been reunited with their families. They've also identified 85 other children who are in the process of being uh, reunited. And uh, President Biden, uh, through his executive order establishing the Interagency Task Force on Reunification of Families, um, that task force has identified nearly 300 uh, U.S. citizen children, if you can imagine that, or separated from their parents during that relevant time frame as well and are working to confirm if they have been reunified with their families and they will also be offered support. But it is, there are still some families, um, every child has not been accounted for and there are still some who have not been reunited and we have heard from um, the DOJ over the course of this uh, some concerns that there may be some families that are not ever reunited. Absolutely unconscionable. Mm. Shameful betrayal of our nation's values. Unconscionable. I'm glad to see them making good on this, but let's never do this again. Now on to the kind of shopping that I don't like. Maybe the only kind. No, I don't like grocery shopping either. But I definitely (laughs) do not like forum shopping. Uh, Several of the legal challenges we've discussed on this podcast were the result of forum shopping, but it's possible the rules around it may change sometime in the future. Barb, first off, remind us what forum shopping is and maybe give some examples of how it has worked. Yeah. So, um, you know, the idea is I want to find a judge that is likely to be sympathetic to my cause rather than filing in court, getting a random draw the way you're supposed to, uh, and then presenting your case and allowing justice to take its course. It is trying to manipulate the system to find a way to get your case before that sympathetic judge. And so, 
the, the loophole in the system is most districts have multiple judges. If you were to file a case, for example, within the Eastern District of Michigan, it would be randomly assigned to one of a couple dozen judges. Um, but there are a few places where there are branch offices of the district court where there is one and only one judge. And so if you file your case in that one court, then you're guaranteed to get that one judge. And if you can find someone who is, uh, you know, based on his record, uh, someone who is particularly conservative or particularly liberal, you might have the ability to sort of put a thumb on the scale of the outcome. I think the most blatant example of this in recent memory was the case involving mifepristone, remember the abortion drug. That case was filed in uh, a branch in Texas where Judge Kazmarek, who was famously uh, opposed to abortion, was the one and only judge. And so they filed that case. They're challenging the FDA approval of mifepristone. And guess what? Got the favorable ruling that they sought. And so that's what forum shopping is. And it's you know really contrary to the notions of uh, a fair, the fair administration of justice. So, Joyce, the Judicial Conference, which governs uh, the rules that federal courts have to play by, is going to study this issue. How did this development come about? And have we gotten any hints about whether there's really an appetite in the conference to do anything about it? Yeah, so, you know, it's really interesting. This goes back to what we were discussing earlier about, you know, whether or not judges are interested in protecting the integrity of their proceedings. And this presents that question not in the context of one case, but sort of writ large on an, on a national screen. Um, some of the impetus to this, I think Barb is right, started with the Mifepristone um, case and with Judge Kazmarek, the single judge who sits in Amarillo, Texas, in that division of that federal district. Well, here's the shocking truth. There's a rule in Texas that permits these single judge divisions to exist. And so Chuck Schumer had written a a letter to the Judicial Conference saying, hey, how about revisiting these views that permit single judge divisions in Texas and perhaps in some other places? Because they're not really doing a lot of good for the federal courts. And the Federal Judicial Conference appears to have heard that. Um, member of the conference's advisory committee on civil rules held a meeting in Washington, D.C., where they discussed the issue. They seem to be committed to uh, at least studying the problem to ensure that the rules are randomly used to assign a judge as opposed to letting lawyers know in advance who the only judge that they're going to be able to draw is. The committee is led by District Judge Robin Rosenberg. She's a Florida judge. She was appointed by President Obama. And as you can imagine, there's already been some criticism from some other judges who've said that they don't see any need uh, to get into the mix on this. But Judge Rosenberg is very well suited to lead this work. She spent some time in DOJ's Civil Rights Division. She's been in big law firm practice, very highly regarded by her colleagues. So she would seem to be a good choice. Um, But it is, I think, worth noting, and we've had this conversation also when it came to cameras in the courts, you know, federal judges nationwide, like many other groups, they have sort of a leadership conference um, where the judges go to Washington and meet and divvy up responsibility for administrative matters. And just as a broad um, sort of observation, I would say that the judicial conference can be very quick to study an issue but also very slow to take action, which is my way of saying I'm not holding my breath here. 
Well, that is uh, not good news. But Barb, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense to talk about form shopping if you don't also talk about the ability of a single federal judge to issue nationwide injunctions, which also happened in the Mifepristone case. Some have called for Congress to act there. What do you think about that? And what do you think the chances are? Yeah, I guess I have mixed views about that. You know, sometimes you can see that this is problematic when you get um, forum shopping and you go target a particular judge and they issue an injunction that's really focusing on the individual plaintiff and the individual defendant in this case and uh, you know weighing all the factors and looking at irreparable harm for these parties and entering an order and then making that order subject to everybody in the United States, well beyond that district, that's a nationwide injunction. And so you could say, boy, because of these, you know, uh, two parties, which may not be representative of the rest of the country, now the single judge has issued an order that applies to all of us. So in that instance, I think it's a bad uh, ruling. But there are other times when there is action that um, is understandable, because if you allowed different judges to enter different rulings, you could create chaos. Um, you may remember when there was the Trump travel ban, some refer to it as the Muslim ban, where he said people couldn't come in from various countries. Um, and we had some individual injunctions going on in certain places, but not others. And then ultimately, I think it was Hawaii where they issued a nationwide ban. And that's when Jeff Sessions said something ridiculous. Joyce, you're an expert on Jeff Sessions. It was something like, <laughs> it's hard to believe a small island could control the whole country. Like a little well, island <laughs> in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, like it is, it is a state judge. And I, that, that you is, know, I would categorize that as part of the conversation we had earlier about people who don't know Puerto Rico as part of the United States of America. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it sometimes it makes sense for one judge to issue an order that is going to affect, because otherwise you've got this patchwork of different rules in different states. And how does that work? If somebody's yeah. traveling into the United States, like you kind of need to have one rule. So, But there, there is... Uh, certainly some, I think, exploration to be done here. Um, and, you know, some scholars are calling for Congress uh, to make a decision about how this would work, about if you, um, if a judge enters an injunction, it would apply only within that district and only to those parties and wouldn't have this, uh, this larger scope. And that if you want to have a nationwide injunction, that can only be done by a three-judge panel. Um, that would include at least one circuit court judge. So that might be a good compromise because I'm not sure it's a one-size-fits-all fit, situation because, as I said, sometimes um, these things uh, make sense and sometimes they don't. Yeah, Barb, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think increasingly, and, and I'm certainly guilty of this, is you see something happening and it's bad and you're just like, kill it, like kill the rule, <laughs> you know, change all the rules. And then you have to step back and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. So yeah. sometimes it can work. Sometimes this is good. Maybe a sledgehammer is not the best approach. Maybe it's something uh, a, a little more strategic. Um, so Joyce, um, as I was preparing for this segment, I, I felt like the access of the earth shifted or something because I found, I came across DOJ guidance and a speech that seemed to uh, align with my views about these nationwide injunctions, but they were done by one former attorney general, Bill Barr. Make it make sense, Joyce. Do we agree with Bill Barr here? Yeah, we don't ever agree with Bill Barr, Kim. It's okay. <laughs> I'm going to make it better. <laughs> so here's you. the reality. It just depends 
on how a judge has ruled most recently on nationwide Uh injunctions as to who likes them and who doesn't. In fact, you know, prior to about 2015, Republicans thought nationwide injunctions were great. There was one case where a judge struck down some administrative rules President Obama had put in place on overtime pay. Another case where they struck down DACA and Republicans were on a roll. They thought that these nationwide injunctions were the greatest thing that ever happened. Then the Trump administration came along. The Muslim ban was um, struck down. Um, Judge Peckman in Northern California entered a national injunction to prevent the administration, the Trump administration, from enforcing its ban on transgender people in the military. And all of a sudden, Republicans were up in arms. Nationwide injunctions are the worst things that ever happened in the country. Um <laughs> I think as a, as a floor, and look, reasonable people can and should debate whether or not nationwide injunctions make sense. Congress has the ability to pass laws in that regard. I think something that we can all agree upon is that it's this intersection of nationwide injunctions with single judge divisions and judge shoppings that's so harmful to the process. Because when people who want to seek a ban on a drug like mifepristone know that they can go to Amarillo and get a judge who is on record as saying he opposes abortion, well, there you go. But that's hardly a fair process with the kind of integrity that the public needs to have confidence in the courts. So I say we start there and fix that problem, and then we can move on and consider nationwide injunctions on their merits. Well, we know neither the Judicial Conference nor Congress are bodies that seem to act uh, very often or in very uh, effective ways. But let's hope that both uh, give us a little better clarity on both of these issues. Well, now we've come to our favorite part of the show where we get to answer questions from our listeners. I mean, this has been one of those crazy weeks where we all have questions. I hope we answered a lot of your questions about Sidney Powell. We had a lot of questions about her her plea agreement. Hope we answered those up front. We've got a few additional ones that we've picked to answer this week. Um, if you have questions for us, please email them to us at sistersinlawatpoliticon.com or thread them to us, or X them to us using the hashtag SistersInLaw. If we don't get to your questions during the show, keep an eye on our our feeds on social media throughout the week. We'll answer as many additional questions as we can get to. But we've got some good ones this week. Um, I'm going to pitch the first one to myself. It comes from DDog284, and DDog asks, what are the different ways a judge can be removed from a case? So I can think of two. One is that a judge can voluntarily recuse, either on their own because they think that they have a conflict, or they can recuse at the request of one of the parties. A judge might also take themselves off of the case if there's some sort of a time constraint. Maybe they have a trial that has to happen under the Speedy Trial Act. I mean, there are some reasons that a judge might go to their chief judge and say, hey, can you reassign this case? It would be wrong for me to handle it or or inefficient. Doesn't happen very often, but it can. Then the second path to reassigning um, a judge is one that I've had to use um, a time or two where a judge is just beyond the point where they're perceived as being fair. And so you can ask the appellate court on appeal to reassign the judge. I've done that a couple of times. 
I also, in one case, had the court reassign the judge sua sponte on its own initiative without me making the request. Um, so those are the two options I see, the judge on his own or a court tells um, her to do it. Am I missing anything, y'all? No. I mean, I've seen that happen, too, where you either you ask or the, ju- the, the appellate court just says, this is so egregious, we're just going to take, take this on our own and reassign it to someone else. Yeah, same. I think those are the paths. You know, good judges know to reassign themselves when they have a conflict of interest. It's interesting, perhaps of note to our listeners, that in the 11th Circuit, when you file an appellate brief, I did this every time I, I had a case, you actually have to run a list of the people who have an interest in the outcome of the case so that the clerk's office can compare that to each judge's list of of companies or people that they need to be recused from hearing cases about. It's just, it's nothing personal. No one's at fault. It's just that when the conflict exists, you do what you need to do to protect the integrity of the proceedings. Um, So great question. Thank you for that one. Our second question comes from Diane in Columbus, Ohio. Kim, this one I think is for you. She asks, considering how our news organizations have struggled in the age of the internet, do you think we suffer from a lack of investigative reporters compared to the Watergate days? Well, um, this is a Watergate question and we are without Jill, sadly. But luckily, I saw Jill earlier this week at a Watergate retrospective here in Washington, D.C. And she talked about this. So I will just relate what she said. Uh, So it's just like she's here. The point that, um, well, I will start by saying, I don't think it's that we have that we lack investigative reporters. What she said is, at that time, we had an agreed set of facts. We had news organizations that people watched and believed in. And when they saw the facts, it took a long time before Watergate really caught on as something that uh, Americans were really concerned about. But once they once it did, it caught on in a way uh, that was quick and that people really got it and understood it across the board. And that is when the tide shifted. So it's, there are a lot of good people doing a lot of good investigative reporting right now. At the Boston Globe, we have something called the Spotlight Team, which uh, you may know about. They uncovered the things like the uh, abuse in the Catholic Church and a lot of other things. Um, we have seen ProPublica come out with a lot of the reporting and their investigative uh, work about the Supreme Court. There's good investigative reporting, but when you have a ton of misinformation and fragmented news sources, it doesn't hit the same way that it hit back in 1973 or 1974. So I think that's the difference there, not the lack of reporters. Sorry, I'm feeding nachos to Miss Fig. Um, <laughs> I thought that you were going to say more, so I'm like literally feeding the poor dog nachos. She's so happy. Wow. And Snickers is going to find out about this and say, wait a minute. Wait, let me see if y'all can see. (laughs) She's so cute. Look, she has on her little green jacket for winter. Oh, she is very cute. (laughs) She's a good, good girl. You're a good girl, Miss Fig. Okay. I'm sorry. I apologize for the interruption. Barb, I do have a question for you. I know that you were hoping for nachos. Instead, you get a question. All right. Fair Um, enough. Yours comes from Keegan. I was wondering what your experience was with defendants needing interpreters. Does the FBI use one automatically to avoid this as a potential complication or defense? This is a great question. 
Yeah, I love it. It's so different, but it's it's a really interesting one. And the answer is yes. The FBI has all kinds of language specialists. Um, you know, depending on the office where they serve, uh, the most prevalent languages they'll have. Uh, you know, where I worked, FBI Detroit, they absolutely had Spanish speakers and they had um, Arabic speakers because those were prevalent languages in the community. If you're in other places, they may have other languages. And then in the rare instance when you have a, a really rare language, um, uh, you know, something that just is not represented, they have the ability to get on the phone someone who speaks any language. Um, and so they can conduct an interview with language assistance if someone has that need. And so, you know, it's important. You want to make sure that the person is understanding what you're saying when the uh, questions are very important and very significant. Um, you want to make sure that you understand what they're saying um, and that if they are going to provide a statement, whether it's a confession or a witness statement or some trying to be helpful or whatever it is, you want to make sure that the two parties are understanding each other. So the answer is yes, absolutely. You know, that is such an important program we had. I'm going to um, butcher the pronunciation, but we had um, someone who spoke Hmong, H-M-O-N-G, mm-hmm. people from mm-hmm. Southeast Asia, and mm-hmm. used that program, which is administered by the Civil Rights Division, so that a defendant's rights were fully protected. Um, and it really is pretty impressive and a commitment that the government makes that I think we can all feel good about. Um, Great questions this week. Don't forget, if you have questions for us, please email them to us or leave them on social media. We always look forward to answering them. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Barb McQuaid, Kimberly Atkins Store, and me, Joyce Vance. Remember, you can send in your questions by email to sistersinlawatpoliticon.com, tweet them, or put them on threads. Please support this week's sponsors, Kitsch, Blue Land, and Honey Love. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. See you next week with a new episode, hashtag Sisters in Law. All right, we talked about a lot of good candy, but I'm going to stand by, I will die on this hill. Butterfingers are awful. They are oh. trash. They should not be given out. Don't get. Don't give Those kids Those are fight words. I like Butterfingers. I love Butterfingers. There's some bad Peanut candy out there. Butterfingers not in it. I'm it's sorry, Butterfingers are chocolate-covered tree bark. Like, how, who thinks They're that delicious. that's good? It's a they have that funky list. texture. They're really good. Oh. Now, if you want to talk, you don't bad, like butterfingers. If you want to talk bad candy, how about that thing that looks like a peanut? What even is that thing? You know what I'm talking about? It's like orange. Those are that bag. Ah, that's the, the circus worst. peanut. Yes, yes, those are bad. Yes, those peanut. are terrible. I, I got you there. I agree with you there. That's the uh, worst.